Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asamma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asamma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato Last night uh, we had a circumambulation, and um, as I was walking around the the Buddha, I was just struck by a first impression that I had that was uh, very much, although I was I was trying to follow the sensations of my feet uh, as they were touching the ground, there was a perception that that arose of of my experience around just living in Tisarana, the the sense of myself as a, a being, a person, experiencing this place that I live in, in all the myriad ways, from the, the sense impressions, um, the experiences of living with other people, the particular season and time. And it, it just struck me very, very quickly how, how stuck and enmeshed that perception was and the mental formations that came out of that. And I immediately thought, huh, that's, that's interesting. My perception right now is not how beautiful it is and how clear the night sky is and how wonderful everything looks and uh, the the sense of I guess what I would relate to is freshness there wasn't a real real freshness of the experience it was sort of just right here I am again circumambulating around Buddha one two three and it just came to mind how how that's a fabrication, it's a production that's, that's occurring in my own mind. The, the rote experiences that I have over and over again are, are really informing my, my perceptions and moods to the point of, of seeing it as, as a reality, of seeing uh, these perceptions and the experience of, of living here in, in this monastery as a reality, whereas juxtaposing it to when I first arrived, or when I go to someplace new, there's a very fresh perspective of, of living there in a sense that there's often a, a vibrancy uh, and interest, and that brings with it a sense of, of experiencing that on an internal level. I think, I think what that's often described as beginner's mind. The Zen have that experience of, of what beginner's mind is. And uh, with beginner's mind, for example, with Dhamma practice, then we can often see things that are unusual to us and perplexing. And um, there, I found in my in my own experience uh, when I first started practicing, there was a real interest in examining things that uh, I just I hadn't I wasn't sure about how to look at it or what I was looking at. Everything seemed very new because the the path, the eightfold path, was being pointed out in a way that was was bringing up a lot of feedback, a sense of like, oh, okay, I see. This is how this works, and you know, here's dukkha, here's desire, and this is anicca. And I I found that after many years of being a monk, that it can be harder and harder to gain access to that that beginner's feeling, that freshness, that uh, almost a sense of, of really enjoying enjoying the moment because the investigation is so rich. 
sort of like, I guess I'd describe it as, you know, maybe like seeing a movie you've seen over and over again, rather than something that uh, is surprisingly different and unique, um, something you've never seen before. And the, sometimes the problem is, is, is that we're not really noticing, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm describing something that everybody's experienced with their own practice, but we're not really noticing that there are so many new things going on. And it's, um, it can be sometimes, sometimes difficult to, to see that, in a sense, to get back to the beginner's mind. And to, to, um, to really find ways to understand our experience in new ways, in, in uh, perceiving things, rather than the usual, the usual rote and routine ways, but saying, oh, what's, you know, what's different about this situation? Or how am I actually creating something that's so usual and normal that I'm, I'm uh, just fitting into a, a sort of rut that a wheel is going along? And, and uh, because I'm actually doing that, that's a process that I'm going along and participating, and I'm not seeing that actually it's just the wheel's kind of stuck there. I remember that there was a, a time in, in college when I was watching Alice in Wonderland with some other, um, some other people, some friends, and there was a many different set of circumstances in that situation that I had already seen Alice in Wonderland probably once or twice before that, and after I came out of that I thought, wow, Alice was really at her highest performance tonight. She really, like, she was just perfect. It was it was amazing how well she just dealt with all these situations and everything else, and yet there was there was nothing different about the movie. You know, I'd seen it three times, and there was it was the exact same movie three times, and it was like, oh right, it's it's me who's changed. It's not anything with the movie, and so that that's exactly the opposite is is uh, sensing something that is is the same but then having a very different experience with it. And so in order for us to, to gain access to that beginner's mind, that, that sense of, of freshness and, and looking with interest, we actually do have to see it as a way that we're fabricating, constructing our own perception of our experience. Because if we're not seeing that, then we can go day by day without really noticing much, or, or what we're noticing is not giving so much insight or a sense of, of uh, the nuances of, of um, how our mind is, is really adapting to circumstances and situations. So the trick is, is how to do that. But the trick is also to know that if the mind is engaging in a process where it's either not interested or, or it's, it's kind of dealing with the Dhamma or, or practicing, we're practicing in a way that isn't revealing too much, isn't, isn't where, where we could be more uh, gaining more insight uh, or we could be uh, attuning to things more freshly. It's important also to look at that experience in and of itself is like, well, how does that feel? You know, what is that experience like? Uh, that's another, another method is to get around is to kind of witness that and to be aware of that. Oh, here I am, creating the sense impression of walking around Tisarana and forgetting that that in and of itself is, 
is an experience that in the way that I'm watching it is creating this sort of humdrum, been here, done that way of, of, of being in that moment. And so, again, this takes, uh, you know, this, this really takes an effort to, to look at, at our experiences to try to understand how we're interpreting our perceptions, uh, the five khandhas, essentially. How we're interpreting contact and feeling, uh, perception, and especially the mental formations that come out of that, which can be so varied. So a uh, very easy way that this comes up is, is how, we, how we see people. When we're, when we're engaging with, with people, we just can I really identify someone and say, oh, I know Curtis is. I don't, you know, I, when he arrives in the monastery, the mind immediately just says, that's Curtis. Curtis is um, like this. And it's, it's um, and then it's often in the, it tends to be, we can, we can sense a little bit more of um, an emotional charged feeling that comes with that when we have a particular view or opinion about a person. So we can say, oh, Curtis is here again. I'm so happy. He's, this is, uh, this is so nice to have Curtis again. I'm so relieved. Or, or, oh God, Curtis is here. Oh, this is dreadful. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I better go hide out in my kuti. And, and all of this is, uh, is something that we're creating. And most of us know that and we're aware of it, but we don't, we don't actually tend to it. So I can say it right now and, and we can say, oh yeah, that's right. Of course, we all know that. But, but it's so normal. It's so usual for us that we, we don't, tend to it and say like, well, is that, you know, what, really, what is Curtis? You know, I, I have this idea of, of who Curtis is. He's a person who looks like this, who acts like that, who talks like this. And, and often we ignore signs that, that there's something that's unstable or different, changing or essentially not self. And that's the, that's just the external impression that we're getting. And so what often happens for most of us is, is we're, we're reminded of this when somebody says something surprising to us. We just had, sort of comes out of the blue and says, and, uh, you know, it could even come from a spouse or something like that. How you think, I thought I knew what that person thought all the time. And I guess not. And so that helps a lot when we see that. But again, it comes back to how, how do we develop that without needing to actually have someone remind us uh, of that difference, that change, that, that innate instability with, with all of our experiences. And I'm just using people as, a, as a, an object here because it's fairly easy. I think most of us can identify with that. You know, it's like having a pet and you're just so used to your pet behaving in a certain way. And then when it does, when it does start to kind of behave in a different way, it's... Uh, the, the mind could say, oh, like, wow, what's going on? There must be something wrong. But, but actually, we haven't been seeing that it's, it's unstable and, and not certain all the time. I remember one monk, um, <laughs> one monk received a call from his mother, and she was, I think, I th I think she left a message or she talked to somebody. She was, she was crying. She was very, very upset. She said she had to go talk to her son. Uh oh, okay. But there wasn't an understanding of what this was about. So I went up to him, I said, and I found him on the work scene, so I did drive up in the mountain. We had this little kind of golf cart. Um, 
So I drove from this golf cart up, up the hill, bikers on this very, you know, very steep incline. And I go get this money and say, your mom's on the phone. She's very upset. I don't know what it's about, but she needs to talk to you as soon as possible. And so I just, okay. So we go down together and say, I think it's my grandparents. And she's, uh, I think, you know, they're pretty old and they're really old. And I, I think they're, you know, they're, both of them are of dying age. And so I said, okay, well, go ahead. So he gets on the phone and, and then um, I happen to be around not around to hear the conversation by Ron, he comes out and he's like, oh, yeah. And I said, so what, what's going on? He said, is, um, yeah, she was really upset. She was like, I've never heard her that upset. She was really upset. She, he goes, um, her cat died. And I thought, her cat died? Said, yeah, her cat died. This really, really old cat, you know, it was like, it was like 18 years old and it was, you know, all bony and just was sleeping all the time. Whatever he said, I can't remember exactly. And I just thought, oh, not to trivialize someone's relationship with their cat. And I've sure loved my cats. I'd be very upset, but, but it, it was interesting because it seemed like an emergency situation. And I guess she couldn't get a hold of her, of her, his dad or husband. And... And it struck me, though, how interesting it is to actually be around an animal that, for example, this is just another example, that you know is just going to die at any moment. And just to, to, to kind of not realize that, of course, of course it would have an impact. I would, I would see it having an impact. But to not actually to use that as reflection, that, that would see it, that's where I would see the difference between a Dhamma practitioner and sort of a worldly way of, of looking at things. Because there's a sense that we know that, that these relationships we have aren't stable with each other, even if somebody doesn't die. But, but more or less, it's, it's very important, I think, to, to kind of look at reality and see like how we're creating. This, this is my cat. I get up every day and it's still alive. It's going to remain like that. And, and not to sense that there's, there's sort of a shock. That's something that we, we're kind of perceiving and going along with, going along that rut. This is my cat who's always been alive and it's going to remain alive. Wouldn't be an opportunity to reflect on. So I think most of us as dumb practitioners might be very affected by a death or something like that, especially of a person or an animal. But we could probably have a sense that, oh yeah, this, that's right. Everything that happened when, uh, something, when an animal dies, for example, if we're, if we're practicing well with the Dhamma, is to see this perspective, this perception with a sense of, right, this is inherently unstable. And when... When something um, that we that we that we see as possible but changes in our environment, that we can then adapt to that perception and then see it and watch our minds in a way, so that we're not really thrown off base by it. So that in order to see that perspective, it's interesting to also see like how are we moving into our our normal way of of viewing experience, our normal way of consistently being with what, it, what arises in our environment, the people we work with, the people uh, we live with, and how we're creating our entire reality and recreating our entire reality at every moment of our day. And then it's quite difficult to interrupt that. It's quite difficult to kind of get a wedge in and say, like, oh, wait, um, that's not actually true or that's not right. 
So with, you know, living as a monk in a, in a monastery, it's very easy for that to come up. Just, I mean, I, I want to say hourly, but it's like, it's like just kind of moment by moment. It's always, it seems to be always arising. And again, I'm, I'm bringing up people as a, as a factor in this, but it's just the way that, for example, I, I speak to other, the other monks in the monastery. So like, for example, I've lived with uh, Tan Kameko for, I think it's been like six years we've been in the same monastery together and haven't been very far apart. We haven't had really long periods of time where we've, we've actually left the monastery that we've been living in together. So you get used to people and used to their quirks. And, uh, and so I've noticed that not seeing things anew, I can get very used to it. I say, oh, he's, he's doing that again. Or, um, uh, or I can say, or I could, or I could go in a negative way. I was always, oh, always doing that, you know? And I have no idea what another monk's mind state is. I mean, I'm not, I don't read minds, so I don't know what another person's mental perception is or, or what's going on for them. Uh, I can, it's always interpreted by a layer of, of all of the, the comma that I have, all the Vipaka comma, the results of the actions that I have. And so to kind of be, to kind of really bring this up when I'm interacting takes a lot of effort. It takes uh, a lot of doing because the mind wants to kind of relax into to just seeing a person in a particular way. And I noticed to myself that when I put effort into, into undermining and, you know, one, one side is examining, one side is undermining the, uh, I guess I'd call them unskillful perceptions that I have, which are just perceptions that are based on stability and uniformity and 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 non you know non-changing uh, perspectives about again about you know someone who I'm living with it takes a lot of effort to actually undermine that and, and say like wait a minute I don't, I don't really know that to be true and to to start really looking at it when the mind moves away from uh, from being attentive to the body for example and it goes off into a either a, a mental formation or a sense impression of someone else to really kind of chase that down and, and bring it back into focus and say, well, is he really that way? Do I really know what he was doing or, or why he was doing this? It's kind of, it's kind of tiring, but then, it, but then it, it brings up that fresh perspective of, no, I don't know, I'm not sure. Um, and because I'm not sure, then I have a sense of, of oh yeah, right, this is, this is what the Buddhist, what the Buddha's pointing to, and it feels a bit irksome, it's a bit destabilizing, because the sense that we have of other people is that, or my, my idea of it is, I, I always like, feel like that it, it, it's something likable, enjoyable, steadying, comforting, that everything that I believe about uh, my external environment is really true, in, in every way that I'm actually interacting with particular objects. You know, like I'm, uh, I see this water, I taste this water, it tastes good, and I immediately have, when I see it, I immediately believe the cup's not going to break. We've often heard the metaphor, the cup's already broken, but it could shatter in my hand. Or, you know, um, I, have a, I have a perception that Siddhartha's a very faithful person, very kind person. He didn't put poison in the water. He didn't find, oh, this is the opportunity, finally. <laughs> It's just so easy. You just ask me to bring the water. 
so there's a there's a, a perception that I'm I'm carrying around about this stuff, and and so it's it's it, it takes a little bit of work to kind of to kind of to to change that uh, that attitude that we have towards things, and it doesn't mean that that then what arises out of that is paranoia. It's like oh god, maybe Siddharth really did poison it. Uh, I should be careful. I'm not going to have any of that water. But just to know that that there's ways of, of, of looking at all of the objects, whether they're people or or our, our physical objects, the food. You know, perceptions of food are so easy. Like I'm going to like that. This is going to be good. This is what I really want. It's so you know, and then and then you 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 eat food, and it 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 doesn't it doesn't match up with the perception, or if it does, we're not really witnessing or seeing correctly that it's not actually uh, matching as well. And often the most obvious thing with food is it's, it's just never as good as what the mind believes it's going to be. Never that good. And we dress it up. We say, oh, this is going to be great. And then even in our minds, it's the desire that's so enjoyable. It's the, oh, I can't wait to have this. And we put it in our mouths and, oh, that really is so good. It's so good that I can't even you know, be with it anymore, I have to get the next one in my mouth so that the taste doesn't go away or that I can get the taste that I believe it's going to be good. And it's very interesting how this, this whole process works. And so when, when I look at something like that, an interesting thing that I notice if I'm just not stuck in that rut is that I don't want to actually examine food. I don't want to look at my perception of food because when I do, then it starts to break apart the enjoyment. And then it's always, oh, but I, I like this desire. I want to have pleasant tastes, or I want to believe that it's pleasant tasting. I don't want to think about, you know, the fact that there could be a fair amount of hair in the food, or, or that I don't really know where it came from, or uh, all of the labor that went into it can be quite a lot of uh, dukkha. There's all kinds of things, and and I can see the resistance of the mind in that in that way to, to actually exploring that. One of the one of the things that we do as monks is to try to. To, to look at desire and undermine it, and and that's not just monks. That's that's anybody who's really interesting in, interested in, in um, uh, examining desire and also undermining it at the same time, so we can kind of get a foothold to be able to see it. Because if you're stuck in desire, it's very hard to get to get around it, to 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 understand it and see it clearly. So I noticed that when I when I do things in order to to as I was just talking about to undermine the perspective of something being delicious or good, there's this very strong resistance that's felt in the sense of like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, you know, this is the best part of the day right now. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is the, the one sensual indulgence I'm allowed to have. Mm-hmm. Don't take this away. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then right there, it's oh, right there. There's, there's the, there's the dukkha. There's where the dukkha occurs because this is a this is very much based on addiction, on uh, obsession, and on the mind creating something where, by following desires, there's no way to be mindful. There's no way to see clearly. There's no way to to gain access to have wisdom. It's just not going to be there. You can't you can't have wisdom if you're if you're um, trapped in your own desire around uh, a sensual experience. So. So that, that getting out of that rut perspective uh, and gaining a fresh perspective 
can take some effort, but it, it comes with the rewards because for that immediate sense around around food, there's there's at first the sense of like I don't want to deny myself this this enjoyment, but then the realization that the enjoyment's really insubstantial in the first place. It doesn't it doesn't last. I remember that uh, I had one time I had I mean I've done this many times, but I, I made a comment to um, Debbie, who's who's been a resident of Igiri for uh, almost twenty years, and and there was some dessert that I passed up, and I said, oh, I really miss that dessert. I think I was in Anagarka or Savannah or something, and she said uh, it was a short-lived experience, <laughs> and uh, and that always really that always really stuck with me around not just food, but around any kind of sensual. Uh, object that I was pursuing was oh this is just it's not going to last and if I ever got caught in it I could say that to myself you know this is short lived and really realize like this is short lived you know it's just a few bites it's gone it's just a few visual moments of seeing something I want to see and it's gone and I can get so caught up in the excitement around seeing it around enjoying it you know, I'm going to get this, I'm going to see this, I'm going to be with this particular thing that I'm expecting to give me pleasure. And then I'm, you know, fooled again because it, it just wasn't, it was all in the desire to get rather than what the actual experience was. And it's so funny actually, and, and also very sad at the same time, uh, how much involvement can be made into trying to get things uh, and being excited about something. So, for example, I'm, I'm supposed to go, if all things go according to plan, as we like to say, uh, down to Temple Monastery around June. And Ajahn Dun is going to be there, and then Lumpur Pasna, my preceptor, is going to be there uh, just after that, and there's going to be an ordination. And the mind is just kind of, oh, yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> it's so much fun. And, uh, around these these senior monks and and then you know it's just always the same thing again and again with all of these these things that I've expected is dukkha you know it's like oh yeah there's dukkha involved in every conditioned experience there's going to be dukkha it's not avoidable and anything that I thought was going to be sukha was going to be enjoyable maybe it's enjoyable but it's always probably enjoyable in a very different way than I expected because again I was I was coming from this very rote like expectation about how something should be and this is just a future experience this isn't even just the present moment so we can very much get get stuck in the ways that we believe something is going to be whether it's something uh, as simple as food or or some very elaborate experience we're going to have in the future and uh and it's great to challenge that and just be like don't know don't know and, and i've found that many times when I anticipate the future, many times it's just, it doesn't, the, the actual event doesn't even happen. You know, I don't end up going down to, to New Hampshire. And, and there can be days where there's like, oh yeah, I'm going to New Hampshire, it's going to be interesting. I wonder who's going to be down there and uh, what questions should I ask Ajahn Dunn? And, um, and what, you know, how, how will this work or that work? And then, and then I just, I don't even go because I got sick or whatever it is. Or I get there and Ajahn Dunn has canceled his trip. <laughs> you know? 
and Ajahn Pasano had to go somewhere else, and um, and the monastery is actually caught on fire, and there's nowhere to stay. <laughs> so it's quite interesting to kind of you know you, I I could go there and have all of these different experiences, but I think the 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 wisdom lies in in actually not not seeing these things as I'll practice the Dhamma in this way that I'm I'm talking about right now uh, when I get there. It's more like all of these things are arising in our experiences, whether we're, we're thinking about the past and believing in our, our perceptions of the past. And you say, oh, don't you remember this is how this happened and last year when this happened with that person? I don't remember it that way at all. No, that's not how that, that happened. Actually, uh, that person wasn't actually here at that time. What do you mean they were here? I had this conversation with them. Was, no, that was last year's Katina. That wasn't this past year's Katina. That was like two years ago. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Here, look, here's some photos. Person's not there. Or whatever it is. You know, we, we can, it's the same thing, whether it's our past, our present, or our future. Uh, there's always an instability around it and, and uh, a way that we're, we're working with our, uh, our perceptions and mental formations that are, are building them up and creating an identity around them, creating a way that we see ourselves in our own experiences and 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 without true wisdom and investigation it's very hard to to move out of the uh, that realm so for example how we work with our own emotions and moods uh, can be quite trying can we be quite actually painful sometimes uh, because our moods are so believable and then we know how for each one of us as an individual we work with something like sadness or something like anxiety or worry. You know, um, for many of us, we have a set sort of uh, narrow way of behaving when we feel anxious about something. We do something. So for some of us, it might be, um, I'm going to go uh, read the newspaper or something, or I'm going to, um, they don't really have those anymore, do they? No, I'm going to go read my ebook, or whatever it is. I'm going to go and talk to a person, and they're going to settle me down because uh, they'll give me some perspective. Or I'm going to talk to somebody because they'll help me get away from my anxiety because they're a fun person to be around and they, they, uh, they distract me with all the useless things that they say. Um, so we, we have ways of, of kind of engaging with our moods. Um, or for example, like, yeah, if we're sad or melancholy, it's, it's, it's often in the sense of like, there can be a weight around, for example, um, this is how it's always going to be. You know, I'm always going to feel sad. Or, you know, a, a mood can overcome us. And even if it lasts for days or even months, we believe that voice that tells us it's just going to, it's just going to stay the same. And it's, it's hard. Again, it takes effort. All of us as practitioners know that to, to try to get ourselves out of the rut of perceiving a mood as just a changing phenomena. Because it seems so substantial and real. Sadness, for example, doesn't seem to, to, to change moment by moment if we're not investigating. But as soon as we start investigating and understanding it, then we can develop a perception of insubstantiality around it. And even though there's such a strong movement of mind towards a perception of non-change with something like a, a strong mood, we can... We can through, through um, the, the teachings, uh, through, through mindfulness, through our, our understanding of our own minds and how our intentions are, 
are moving, uh, the mental formations are, are coming about and we're, we're fabricating our own experience, we can really try to examine that, uh, that mood, you know, is it really felt in the same place? Because a, a mood, uh, for example, is, is not, it's not a, a feeling, it's actually a bunch of many different mental formations, sankara. It's a combination of, you know, like, so this mosquito is, is buzzing around me right now. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm kind of feeling a fear and anxiety around the fact that it might bite me. And I'm not, I'm only responding to that in a way that is, and that is focused on, I know what this one is like, I know what this, or this emotion is like of, of fear around a particular insect. And often I see, for example, that my fear is based on the future. It's not the sting, which I don't mind so much. It's right where it stings me is where I'm going to itch for the next three days. And there's this fear that comes around that. But what I'm identifying is this, you know, this kind of get away from me. And the immediate sense impression of that is, um, I know this emotion, this is how I deal with it. You know, I deal with it by getting, you know, this particular tool out and this will save my life and then everything will be fine. And so there's a set of reactions that I have, grab that tool, it's sitting over there, and, um, and then, of course, our minds move very quickly. So then I go to grab it, and it's not there, and I say, who moved that? Who moved my mosquito catcher? How dare they? And all of a sudden, now I'm, talking, I'm, I'm stuck in anger, and the fear's gone, and I'm, I'm totally lost myself from one, one emotion to the next. And then the mosquito buzzes around, and I hear that. That's contact. And then all of a sudden, this, this fear arises again, and I'm reacting just like sort of just someone who's I guess the way Ajahn Chah talked about it if you're not mindful around something you're you're insane you've gone crazy and so if I'm not aware of this I'm just constantly reacting in this way just go from fear of a a mosquito because I have this particular contact and then I move and I I have this other contact it's gone the tool I use it's gonna help save me from this horrible excruciating experience that's worse than any massacre I could ever think of and over the next three days um, it's just a mosquito bite, but uh, but I'm reacting again, and then the mosquito buzzes. I forget my my anger, and we can we can react like that over and over again, but we we're trying to to continually bring up. Oh, wait wait a minute. There's uh, there's a way that I can I can not only watch from from my my body, you know, try to be a witness to to the experiences I'm having that are, are causing these intentions. But also to look at that in a very fresh way, to see to see my experience in in a way that's really elucidating the the Dhamma very clearly. And what I often find is is that sometimes there's been so much time in in, in examining our experience and what it is we're doing that there can almost be a uh, as as practitioners a sense oh, I don't want to really look at that again. You know, and that's another way that we're, we've sort of um, undermined a, a fresh perspective. You know, there, there can also almost be some, uh, occasionally, I remember Ajahn Suchito talking about that after many years of practice, sometimes the last thing people want to do is meditate. And it's like, oh, and some of you might say, well, I'm not there. Uh, that's not my experience now. But, but occasionally that can come up and there can be a, a real sense of not wanting to even meditate to look at something. Because you can, not only can there be a rut or, or a sense of, of things being the same and, and not so much of a fresh experience, but that rut can actually cause 
a, a feeling of oppression that if one isn't aware of it, it's, it's again leading towards a desire not to look at our experience. So, so it's, it's very important to, to examine that and see when we're, when we're doing that because it can, it can often pull many practitioners away from Dhamma practice for either for a lifetime or just many years or, or many months. Um, but it's, it's a quite a common experience. Boredom is another way that that, that that brings that sense up. It's like when people give in to boredom, then they, they find that Dhamma practice can be the last thing they want to do. Uh, you know, boredom is, can be very hard to look at. So in these ways, we're, we're trying to, to recognize how it is that the mind can fall into uh, its usual ways of doing things. And sometimes that's how I relate to the fetter Silabhata Paramasa. So that's the fetter of its sort of like rites and rituals, uh, practices, ways that we, we do things that often we, we believe are going to give us results and we're not examining the results and we're not going ahead and, and looking at what we're doing uh, with wisdom, really. So... In the Buddhist time, that was something that was very gross and obvious. That would be like there were fire worshippers, and they would worship fire. Or um, there were people who, the most obvious ways were they thought that if they went down to a river, the Ganges, they could go into the river and wash away their kama with the water. And the Buddha was saying, well, like, have you seen that actually happening? You know, Has, have you, you know, you've, you, you did this thing that you told me about, that, that caused you a lot of dukkha, a lot of pain, and then you go down to the river and you bathe, and you bathe many times a day, like, are you feeling better? And some of them might say yes, just because they're so stuck in that perspective, this is, this is really what's helping me. They believe in their view so much that it's actually fulfilling itself in their not being able to see clearly that it's not actually offering them anything. But we can do the same with our own practice. The way that we, you know, pound away at our meditation object. Whether it's giving us results or not, could be the same exact thing. So I'm just going to watch my breath for the rest of my life, and that's all I have to do. I don't have to do anything else. Well, not really. That's not how how Dhamma practice works. There's something called reflection. Uh, There's something called uh, examination and and understanding. And you can't can't just watch, for example, pick an object and watch it, without actually bringing in the, the Buddhist teachings, without understanding dukkha, nietzsche, and anatta, for example, the three characteristics. And that's actually the purpose of watching an object, is so that you can have a concentrated mind, and that allows you to, to see these, these three characteristics very clearly, and allows you to see um, the Four Noble Truths very clearly. But people can, can sort of get stuck in a rut around, around their meditation, for example, and... and especially around ideals and, and beliefs and how, how things are supposed to work. You know, for example, for monks, it could be like what a good monk is supposed to be like. And good monks do that, and bad monks do this. And therefore, I'm a good monk when I'm doing this kind of thing, and I'm a bad monk when I'm doing that kind of thing. And, and it's just like, well, it doesn't, it doesn't really work like that. You know, it's, it's not, you can't just say that performing a particular activity is going to, to bring a, a specific result. You have to actually look at that result and see whether it's true. So when we're, when we're engaging with our meditation object, 
I find that's that's one of the easiest things that that can be can get me into a rut so easily. You know, I'm watching the breath, and this is how I'm supposed to be watching the breath. You know, it, I, I experience a particular sensation uh, arising and falling, beginning and ceasing, and I'm witnessing in this in this way. But I'm not seeing that every few minutes there's so much agitation in the way that I'm I'm looking at my breath that there might be a sense of hmm, maybe I shouldn't be watching my breath in this particular way. I should either broaden the view or change the meditation object uh, or anything that, that could be it. But I'm believing that, no, this is how I have to do it. This is my sila bhatta paramasa. This is uh, my rut that is going to give me results, even though it's not giving me anything. Um, well, if I just stick with it for another you know few years, then I'm sure it'll give me something. And so, so part of our practice is to, to continue to bring up a fresh perspective and say, now, wait a minute, is it, is it really true that the way that I'm looking at this and following this intention is bringing up skillful results? And, uh, and so each of us has to examine that as much as we can, whether that's in how we're dealing with other people, how we're looking at, at our particular object of meditation, or just the, that perspective as I started the talk with. Uh, you're just walking around someplace and just to witness a sense impression and not see that uh, two years ago I'm walking down the same road and totally different perspective and yet I think I'm the same person. You know, this isn't like, you know, an amazing revelation or anything, but it's, it's, it's very present, it's very visceral. We can We can see it, we can understand it. It's like, you know, Alice really wasn't, she's not changing at all in her routine. There's nothing that, that was really there in, in the object we're witnessing. But it's us who's constantly changing, but not seeing that at the same time. So these are, these are just some things that I've been thinking about. And if there's anything in there that had any, any um, glimpses of wisdom for you, then please take that with you. Otherwise, you can leave whatever did not behind. Mm-hmm.